welcome to uh, another episode of The Colour Couch. Um, this is uh, a very exciting episode for me because I'm speaking to my colleague, friend and mentor, David Muir. Um, David Muir is a director of photography who's based in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, he's also a mentor, a film teacher and an advocate of Australian, for Australian film. Um, David served for uh, decades on the Australian Cinematographer Society Committee, including four terms as the Victorian State President. And whether David was aware of it or not, he was also my mentor. Um, <laughs> uh, as I was cutting my teeth as a young cinematographer, it was David who was always there to offer advice and encouragement at every step. Uh, and I can confidently say uh, that without David Muir, I would not be where I am today in my career as a colorist, and I'll always be grateful for that. Um, welcome, David. Hey. Hi. Lovely to speak to you. It's good to speak to you, my friend. Um, I have uh, a ridiculous amount of questions, and I'm sorry, but uh, you've, you've, you've got such an amazing career and uh, such a history to delve into, um, and... I'll try and I'll try and keep it as concise as possible. I do promise. Um, now I know that you you started off as an art and photography student at Caulfield Tech, and do you do you kind of remember or do you recall what drew you um, to that world of art and photography when you were a young man? Uh, the uh, the strange thing about that is that uh, basically uh, I was uh, evacuated, which sounds strange at this stage, but uh, during the war. Uh, after the Japanese uh, submarines surfaced in Sydney Harbour, there was a bit of a panic in Australia about, uh, you know, when we would actually be invaded by the Japanese. So I was sent to stay with my uh, aunt and uncle in the country uh, in this very primitive wattle and daub uh, adobe. I think it's ad adobe, uh, not, not the... Um, as just the web system, but mud, <laughs> mud, uh, mud construction house uh, in the country. But in the bookshelves there, there was there were bound copies of an amazing um, British magazine for art connoisseurs called the Burlington Magazine. And uh, I was such a keen reader that I read anything that I could get hold of, you know, and. Um, for the first time, I found that art was taken seriously. And uh, my uncle used to go into the nearest city, which was Ballarat, uh, to sell firewood, and he'd leave me uh, either in a pavilion in, in the Botanic Gardens where, they, where there were a lot of uh, traditional old uh, statues so I was left either there to um, draw the statues or if the weather was really cold, uh, I'd be dumped at the art gallery. And likewise, there were a lot of uh, statues there and I started drawing them. So anyway, I must have had some sort of uh, propensity ability or something to draw because uh, the uh, day that I turned 14, uh, I transferred from technical school to the full-time art uh, school there, uh, which was a senior school, which, you know, these days you wouldn't be allowed to enter it at 14, but those were the yeah, old days. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so that's how I started. And then uh, I, I had a brief spell 
working as a junior commercial artist, and uh, that was not fun. <laughs> uh, well, I had to draw 53 different versions of uh, Fletcher Jones trousers, you know, which was not really uh, what I uh, <laughs> thought being an artist was all about. So I started studying um, photography at night, um, at night school and uh, in the hope that I could earn a living that way and it would be a little bit more compatible with drawing browsers. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, I understand you had your first documentary assignment when you were only 16 years old. I mean, how did, it, how did that come about? Uh, the, the art school, that I, I mean, the school that I went to had a film society. Uh, there were no film schools or anything in those days, so... Film societies were how one learned about film. And so um, I became very keen on uh, watching movies, you know, all the old classics. Uh, but on Sunday, Melbourne was totally dead. It was a really wowser uh, city. You weren't allowed to do anything much on it uh, when you should have been at church. <laughs> so... Um, the only place that was open uh, on Sunday was the Realist Film Society. Yeah, I uh, got a, to be a regular and then I got to helping out at the, you know, front doors of box office and watched all these old, um, you know, Russian classics, uh, uh, you know, Battleship Potemkin, all that sort of thing. Um, and eventually I started uh, helping out was also with the film unit because I was doing photography. So, And uh, a dear lady uh, in the film unit showed me how to use a Kodak Model B city camera, which was the most primitive wind-up uh, uh, device, but um, was a great way to start. Yeah. And then what? And then, do you recall um, uh, any of the assignments that you had? There were strange things like uh, there was a, a novel, a so-called novel by Frank Hardy called um, oh, "It Doesn't Matter." Anyway, the book was banned because it actually was based on a real-life character. So I, I filmed it coming off off the press, and it that was. Um, you know, sort of one photo flood lamp here and another photo flood lamp there. I understand you assisted um, the incredible stills photographer, uh, Wolfgang, is it pronounced Sievers? Sievers. 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 And you also kind of uh, got to be his printer, is that right? I mean, what did you learn from that experience? Uh, uh, Wolfgang was such a, an accomplished uh, photographer Um Basically, uh, I learned an enormous amount uh, from him because the big thing that he had was this ability to visualise. So he, he could not only visualise how the shot should uh, look finally, but also how to do it. So there were things like we went to a huge refinery and uh, this camera was set up on a, a rostrum very solidly, and my job was a very arduous job of opening and closing the shutter when he signalled me to. But he walked all around, he was dressed completely in black with a black 
cloth over his head and all that sort of thing. And wow. he would fire different size flashbulbs at different distances in the blackness. You know, there was only that whatever it was, I don't know, 25th of a second or whatever it was that the wow. bulb took to go off. Uh, but he knew exactly how it would look and the results were always perfect. And that system was um, what used to be called a flash factor. I don't know whether you've, anyone's heard of the flash factor these days, but uh, what that amounted to was a, a formula for a particular flash bulb or whatever, um, so that if the flash factor was 160 and you were at 10 feet, it meant... 10 into 160 meant you shot at F-16. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so yeah. He, he worked out the flash factors, but he also um, worked out to, to be able to do the same thing with a, a flood lamp. So he'd walk around all covered in black, places like the Capitol Theatre. He'd walk around covered in black, but he'd know exactly how long to... Wow. That, that was literally painting with light, you know, walking. Yeah. His, I guess because he, you know, I was cooperating with, I mean, I was part of the process of this, I learned so much from him. And um, the my the lighting factor, which was my version, <laughs> my film-type version of the flash factor for stills, uh, meant that, you know, in my future career, I could uh, work out not only where to place lamps and um, which lamps to use and so on, but I could also uh, work out in advance what aperture would be needed, which was a wow. really great thing. And it, uh, it enabled me to, you know, brief the electricians as to, you know, I'd walk around a set and uh, with a piece of... Uh, a chalk on the end of a log stalk. I put crosses where the lamps were to go, and that's awesome. Uh, you know, 5k spot, 2k flood, all that sort of thing up there, and the um, electricians could work on their own in advance of us getting there, and I'd know what the aperture was. Which in the days when film was very slow and and Lenses, uh, I, I mean, we the advent of the zoom lens was great, but the zoom lens was slow, it was 3.9. And the, and, and the and the film speeds themselves would have been so much uh, uh, slower as well. Well, when I started our uh, color film, the first Eastman color film was uh, 16 to daylight and 25 to oh my gosh, which meant that. Everything had to be lit, you know. I mean, uh, if you're trying to give the impression of candlelight or um, fire, you know, campfire light, yes, you'd have the real thing, but you'd have to boost it with <laughs> uh, some form of um, additional lighting to, to make it actually register on film. What, what always amazes me to this day about that skill I understand mechanically. Yeah, you've got to you've got to put a lot of light in there because the film stock isn't very fast. But to keep to look at something so bright, but to still keep those contrast ratios looking realistic, I mean that astounds me. 
you know, to still know where it's going to drop off to shadow and uh, <laughs> once it once it goes onto film. Yeah, it, it was demanding. Yeah, and uh, in in one sense, uh, color was relatively easy because with color you got an automatic separation of your subject from the background. Right. Uh, like, you know, I can see that your um, your shirt is a different color to the background, so that separates it. But in black and white, uh, there was this problem of things merging. So that's why the the Hollywood um, sort of formula, uh, key light, fill light and backlight, the backlight basically being to separate, separate the subject from whatever was behind it, terribly important in black and white. Mm. And um, you then eventually moved to Sydney, Sydney, Australia, to become a cameraman. Um, so how did that, cro- I mean, you touched on it a little bit already, but how did that crossover from stills to motion picture, I mean, how did that happen? And were there a lot of skills from photography that you took with you into film then? Well, yes, there were a lot of uh, still photographic skills that I took with me, but um, I was terribly lucky because uh, I, I went to work for a still photographer, a lovely man called Brian Cherlian, who um, had his own uh, studio in Sydney, but he wanted to branch into filmmaking. Um, so oh. the first thing he did was to, to buy a, a buy film camera. So he bought a 16mm camera and then he bought a 35mm camera um, because that was what, you know, to be a stills photographer, you had to have your camera. <laughs> so that was what. And because I knew, uh, you know, how film cameras worked and had actually used them, uh, I got to being, a, you know, fully professional cinematographer at age 20, which was unheard of in those days. I mean, these days yeah. everyone can do it, but in those days it was it was unheard of. You know, so I was bloody lucky. Yeah, yeah. And then and then um, so how long how long were you with him then? Oh, I think three or four years. I, I don't know, but uh, the thing is, while working there, I shot three 35mm films, uh, short films for him, 35mm because they were going they were want, going into the cinema, which was the only way to show films in those days before television was widespread. So I did uh, two in black and white and one in colour, and one of the black and white ones was um, financed by uh, what was then the... Commonwealth Film Unit, I think it was, which was a government filmmaking body. And because they were pleased with the results, they, um, they offered me a job. So huh. I, I took it. <laughs> can, can I, it, it, just, it just occurred to me then, uh, and something I hadn't thought about that much, but do, did you treat shooting 35 any differently to shooting 16? Not really. Um, mm. I, I mean, um, working for, for the Commonwealth Film Unit was a real challenge, but I'm very glad that I, I did because it, you had to cope with sometimes the most extraordinary circumstances like uh, filming in filming training films, films in New Guinea, <clears throat> 
training films, of course, were on 16mm because they didn't have to go to the cinema. Um, but in the jungle in New Guinea, at the wow. bottom of uh, these forests and so on, it was bloody dark. So, so it was really difficult. And I developed this thing. I, I got ordinary bed sheets and <laughs> had, had them sewn, uh, the edges sewn, to put uh, long bits of bamboo through them so that uh, you could reflect light back onto the subject. Uh, it must have looked pretty silly, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> people holding these uh, uh, white, uh, bed sheets, but it, it, and 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 when you say training films, what what kind of what does that mean? Uh, well, it was things like uh, <laughs> one of the things was a series which uh, was how to grow coffee. Um, the it was quite a a, a um, quite a discipline because the uh, New Guinea people had never seen never seen uh, themselves on screen, you know. So the usual thing uh, that we have where somebody exits frame left and enters frame right, uh, uh, we, we don't realise how unnatural that is. Um, but yeah. these people who had never seen a movie all got up and looked behind the screen. They couldn't. Uh, uh, oh my gosh! No, so you, so you're talking when you actually when you show when you projected the image and they were, oh my gosh, that's so, incredible. So we had this discipline that we had to um, virtually film in real time, you know, which was sometimes was incredible, uh, difficult setups like explaining how the post office works, you know, how they wrote a letter here and it uh, went into the sorting part. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was really a, a choreographic nightmare. But um, but it was a challenge, and I'm glad I had to face that sort of challenge. And 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 being in New Guinea, then what what would happen with with processing of the film and and all the rest of it? Where was that done? Basically, one one waited until one had uh, two or three rolls of film finished, which in the case of 16 mil, yeah, about a half an hour of screen time before you posted it off to the laboratory in Sydney. And you wouldn't actually see it yourself. You would rely on um, reports from people. Oh, gotcha. You had to trust the people who were looking at it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There was a a famous instance of um, I'd been filming um, an exhibition of uh, J.M.W. Turner's paintings in Adelaide, and the paintings are all very soft and impressionistic and... I got this report saying shots such and such to so and so are NG. They're all out of focus and, and overexposed. Oh. And of course, when I eventually saw them, they were perfect. But that was the nature of the paintings. It was the nature of the paintings, yeah. And, oh, that's amazing. Oh my gosh. Yeah, but being reliant on somebody else reporting on you is not, not a good idea. Um, Eventually, you shot your first feature film. Now, what I should say, what was the first feature film that you worked on, and how old were you then? Well, the first feature film I worked on, rather than shot, as a result of my um, the theatrical shorts that I'd been shooting, um, I was engaged by uh, the 
Australian end of a, a production company to be the camera operator on a, a film called The Siege of Pinchgut uh, with, with British. And when the British end of the crew arrived here, the union said, no way, we are not having a foreigner, that's me, a, a foreigner as a camera operator. We have to get a, oh my gosh. a British union member to do it. So I was made second unit, no, second assistant director. And I didn't even know what a second assistant director did. <laughs> so it was a pretty <laughs> a steep learning. Uh, learning uh, curve for me, including things like having to drive a, the generator truck, which was generator plus lights. It was a huge bloody truck with left hand with left hand drive, and we in Australia is right hand drive. So uh, the steering wheel was on the wrong side. And I'm having to drive this across the Sydney Harbour Bridge, not having the least idea how much this. Van behind me is projecting out into the neighbouring lane, so that was pretty terrifying. But it's all part of life's rich experience, isn't it? And it's and it's you know even okay, you you're working on your first feature film, but already you've started building up this artillery of experience. You know, yeah, each yeah. job from the stills to the motion picture, each time you're you're learning a little bit more. Uh, yeah, yeah, the. Next feature I worked on, um, also a British film being made in, in Australia called Smiley, uh, which was about uh, you know, kids growing up in the country and all that sort of thing. And I got to be still photographer on that, which meant buying my camera. <laughs> like I said, you know, to be a still photographer, you had to have the camera yourself. So, um, but that was very interesting you know I learned things like because the Australian sun is so fierce you know the shadows are, are very clearly defined but people are inclined to have black holes where their eyes should be so um, uh, the cinematographer on, on that Ted Scaife had um, huge arc lamps to fill in the you know, even on medium shots and so on to fill in these heavy shadows um, and lots of reflectors to bounce light into things. Uh, all, all very good uh, learning process, so, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, you, you eventually, um, I think it was 1962, you moved to London. What prompted that big move? I didn't really want to go to London. I wanted to go to uh, no. I wanted to go to France because I loved the French New Wave movies, and I thought uh, this was when you know Truffaut, Godard, uh, all that sort of stuff, all all the rage. Uh, oh, and I, I, I guess I, if I had stayed on at the uh, Commonwealth Film Unit, it was at the. This was at the stage when it must have been. Uh, after the sufficiently after the Second World War, that um, all the old blokes were retiring at much the same age, so right. So uh, I would have had to be promoted in that's promoted in in quotes because 
Uh, being promoted to a desk job was not my idea of a good time. So, and because directors came and went uh, on on location when I was working for the film unit, um, but cinematographers just kept on going. We weren't expected to have days off or anything silly like that. So by the time I left for London, I was owed almost a year of um, time in lieu, which uh, I guess. So that was what helped me to be able to, to move to wider fields, shall we say. Yeah, yeah. And then what... What, what projects were you working on in London when you first arrived? Oh, when I first arrived, I, I was working on um, mainly, uh, mainly documentaries, which, of course, are my favourite. Uh, I guess I've always loved recording <laughs> the world around me, so uh, documentaries were a real thing. But as a, I had another problem with the British unions in that um, I... I had been promised a union membership by um, the guy who was head of the Commonwealth Film Europe but uh, had also started the British Union um, and he said he'd arrange it, you know, and it, it didn't happen. So I, I couldn't uh, legally work, so I was taking work wherever, you know, outside England or whatever. And then I had, had to step back, you know, years uh, and work as an assistant at the BBC in Birmingham in order to get me a, a union membership and be allowed to... Oh, I see. Uh, I've had stra- strange things at Pyro in the studios, like when I was doing one of the films uh, there, I um, it's probably one of those horror films like... Um, uh, Lust for a Vampire, or oh, isn't that a great title, Lust for a Vampire? It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I woke up one early, very early one morning and my, all my cheek was swollen with a terrible uh, abscess um, on my gum or tooth or something. So uh, <laughs> I had to, you know, if the cinematographer isn't there, everything stops. So I couldn't, um, you know, just go off and have uh, the operation at the dentist. I had to, uh, you know, dash out. While while the director was directing multiple takes of a scene, I dashed out and went to the uh, dentist across the road and he gave me an injection prior to the extraction. Then I came back. And unfortunately, uh, then it was too, uh, I had to be there for too long, so I had to go back and have another injection. And <laughs> after the second one, you know, I went out and I pulled the tooth out and put a dressing in. So I was walking around trying to, trying to talk to people with this huge dressing on the teeth. Wait a second, wait a second. You had a tooth pulled out whilst you were working? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh, that's insane. That's what was sort of expected of us. Uh, I also, I was filming on Hampstead Heath in the middle of one winter and uh, everything is covered with snow um, and I've, I've got the camera on, tri- uh, 35mm Larry on 
um, a tripod on my shoulder. And as I'm walking along, I suddenly fell into a hole that, you know, had been covered up by snow or ice or whatever. And I thought, this, this hurts, you know, this, but uh, I kept working. And then um, I had to go into a cut, cutting room at night. And it was only when I got into the car then and uh, you know, tried to use my, my left leg for the clutch and left leg wouldn't work. So I had to sort of keep my leg stiff and slide backwards and forwards on it. And when I went to the um, doctor in the morning, he said, straight to a hospital, you know, you've got to get that fixed. It's, you've broken your leg. Oh, my gosh. So I'd been working for, uh, uh, you know, most of the day and a lot of the night uh, with a, a broken leg, you know, a gap of about a, an inch or something. And it, oh, my goodness, man. <laughs> I, 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 see, I see at the end of films they always have, you know, no, no animals were harmed in the making of this film. But they never say no cinematographers were harmed. No, they know. don't say that. I wonder why that would possibly yes, be. Yes, I wonder why as well. Now, could you tell me about your um, invitation to join the British Society of Cinematographers? I mean, you were the youngest person at the time to achieve that. Yeah, I was the youngest person at the time. Since then, you know, many people of much younger age have made it. But um, I, I knew nothing about this, you know, uh, my crew obviously were much more in tune with what was happening in the industry. So uh, I'm on location. Um, the, the crew, uh, I walk in and the crew all clap and say, congratulations. And I, don't, I had no idea what they were talking about. What? <laughs> so uh, the, this was all done without my knowing, I mean, which is... It's a process of peer approval for right. uh, yeah, any of the professional bodies like the Australian Cinematographers Society or the British Society of Cinematographers. So your peers um, vote as to whether you're up to the standard that is required. So and, you, and you were how old, how old? I think I was about 28 or something, 20-something. Like wow. yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Somewhere around there, but but uh, I mean these days, uh, people you know because the, the medium has become so much um, I hate to say it, but so much easier I guess um, there's the, the members have become uh, younger and younger. I don't know the 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 role of of the societies whether it's the British. Cinematographers Society. One of the major things about it is uh, sharing your working methods and uh, approaches. And you know, I was heavily involved in the um, Australian Cinematographers Society, and uh, sometimes uh, the, the screenings. Uh, we always have sh what are called show-and-tell screenings where a cinematographer uh, runs a film or parts of a film and tells you how he did it. And, uh, you know, I had my one of my uh, director friends along to one of these screenings where somebody was presenting how they do it. 
And he was amazed. He said, but he's giving away all the trade secrets. And I said, look, it's the only way things get better. And there, you can't, there's no, there are no formulas in cinematography. You know, you can't, every shot you do presents a different challenge. So you can tell people in great detail uh, how you did a shot. But when they come to do uh, a similar shot, there's going to be some sort of difference. You know, there's going to be a, a window that appears in shot that has to be balanced. There's never the same circumstances. So uh, it's it's fine for, every, for cinematographers to share their methods and experience. I mean, I'm bloody, bloody lucky with that. With it. I guess the most uh, influence on my work was um, the French cinematographer Raoul Coutard. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's... I haven't. I haven't, no. He shot all the... I mean, most of the good new wave pictures for Truffaut, Goddard... Ah, right. And so on, yeah. And when I was in in London, I was um, was engaged to be uh, the stand-in um, cinematographer. Uh, that, that was, no, that meant doing nothing except being there and being paid a, a fee so that Val um, could work on this movie in, in London, a completely self-indulgent. Uh, the du- director, producer, etc., was uh, the son of a merchant banker and he won't he wanted to die owing a million pounds and he was working pretty hard on it. Was, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so uh, I was, uh, well, and I got to being great friends. Uh, we had this uh, sort of language compromise, which was that uh, he spoke in French and I spoke in English because uh, we were much better at <laughs> understanding the other language than we were at speaking it. And, but uh, Raoul was really terrific, uh, and he had to go back to uh, France before the film, uh, which was called Scruggs, by the way. Scruggs. Uh, Scruggs, yeah. Yeah, he had to go back to uh, France before it was finished, so he insisted that I take over, which suited me fine. So this was not only a challenge in terms of being the first feature that I was shooting, but also that I had to live up to the quality of uh, mm. what Raoul Coutard had shot. Yeah, a challenge, but a, a very, very fortuitous, very, very lucky um, challenge and, and circumstance for me. Mm. And and were you were you happy with, with the work that you did on that? Yeah, I was actually. <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah. at the time, yeah. I didn't know any better, did I? But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I went on to shoot other films, that uh, other, uh, some black and white, some colour. You know. it's, it's, it's interesting to me what you were saying about societies because, uh, you know, here you are a member of the British Society of Cinematographers. You're also a member of the Australian Cinematographer Society. And at the moment... In the last, I don't know, a couple of years, few years, uh, there's a colorist society that started up, and there's been a lot of. It's in its very 
early stages and, and there's been a lot of discussion about what's the point of it? Is it just to kind of, you know, is it just to have some letters after your name or is it, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth, but, but interestingly enough, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's about passing on that education and, and just learning off each other and getting better. That's absolutely correct. Um, I mean, I valued colorists, which we called graders, um, because you know, graders applied whether you were it was a black and white or a color film. Mm. I always thought they were so important that I had to, you know, I really cultivated them um, in my professional career. Well, uh, I campaigned for years and finally won. Uh, to have colourists admitted into the Australian Cinematographer Society and that has worked out very well because we are so dependent on each other. It's, um, um, you know, we, 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 we were talking about societies and, uh, and how important that, sh- that sharing is. So with something like the Directors Guild, do you find that that sharing is continued w- with them as well, just so, as it is with the cinematographers? Although the Australian Cinematographers Society specialises in passing on um, the uh, individual cinematographers' methods and uh, creative approaches, I don't. I, in my experience, uh, I was also a, a member of the um, Directors Guild, and the directors were, were not really as forthcoming as. Uh, the cinematographers, and I don't know why. Hmm. Uh, but Interesting. The, the fact that cinematographers share their knowledge so much has resulted in the standard of cinematography in Australia is very high and as a consequence of which the Australian cinematographers are being used on movies all over the world. I mean shooting films in Europe, they're shooting films in America. One of the very good things about trade uh, or industry or whatever you call it, groupings such as the ACS or the Australian Directors Guild is that in times of crisis uh, you can pull together and do something about it. So, you know, at the moment I guess... uh, People are trying to cheer themselves. I mean, people within those societies are trying to cheer themselves up during the pandemic. But there have also been cases when the Australian content laws on for Australian television were under threat and all the, uh, the guilds and associations and even the producers' association all got together to to campaign for the preservation of uh, Australian content laws. And without that, um, I, I, don't think, I don't think the industry would have survived in Australia if we hadn't all worked together. That's amazing. So, so, so you, you kind of, uh, you were involved in bringing them together somehow? Uh, the, the AFI awards were broadcast nationally and... Um, there, there was no um, no mention of the uh, the trade the free trade agenda uh, the campaign against it 
but almost every speaker had uh, this green and gold ribbon, which must have been intriguing. And then uh, the David Wenham, the um, actor, appeared on the screen and he didn't have a ribbon and I was saying, you bastard, I thought you were a friend and you, oh, yeah, I'm railing at the television at home. And then he delivered this impassioned speech about the importance of national culture. And the reason he didn't have a, a ribbon was only because he had um, had to fly into where the AFI and his plane was held up. So he was straight uh, in and straight up to the microphone virtually, but he said such a good thing about the importance of national culture. Yeah, much better the ribbon could have done. Yeah, I mean, the, the ribbons uh, certainly showed the world that all uh, aspects of the industry, from the financiers, the employers, to the workers, the creative workers, were all united on the need for help to preserve local culture. The very next day, uh, the um, uh, producers were invited to Canberra to the Prime Minister. This was the guy who would not have a bar of it, would not listen to them, but because it's been nationwide on primetime television, uh, the, the Prime Minister invited representatives to talk to him. That's such an achievement. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> when, the, when you were in the UK... You worked on so many feature films and a huge amount of documentaries and TVCs. But did you have a preference as to the kind of thing you worked on and, and why? Well, I, I loved doing documentaries for the, the learning process. <laughs> Whatever one was filming, one learned a lot about. But um, I guess features were the highlight of... Um, um, of one's career and but with, without being able to shoot uh, television commercials uh, and the you know equipment possibilities that that opened up I doubt if I would have been able to um, to successfully uh, shoot features when I got the opportunity mm. it's, it's 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 actually the same uh, as a colorist in a way because you know, commercials are the, are the thing are still the thing that kind of pays the bills, mm. um, and and at least the um, the features I'm working on, which are more kind of indie based films and, and things like that, there's not a lot of money in those. You know, you do them because you love them, and and yeah, uh, yeah. you know, and it's and it I don't know, it ticks a little box in your heart. It, it kind of keeps you happy. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I think people don't. I mean, people in the outside world don't understand that. Uh, it's love of a medium that keeps us going. It's, absolutely. it's not the money. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's it's so true. Um, now, I, as you know, I am a massive uh, Monty Python fan, and I know that you were involved with them. And uh, uh, yeah, please tell me about how you got involved with their film. I, I was cinematographer on and now for something completely different, which was their first uh, actual 
cinema film. Yeah, the, the series had been running on TV, but uh, there hadn't been a film that would go into the cinemas until then. It was extremely low budget. But right. the great thing was that um, uh, John Cleese and I really hit it off together. <laughs> um, and we used to play word games while we were uh, be- between takes, you know. Uh, the game was uh, uh, a word-building game where one of us would start with letters and um, the other one had to add a letter, either the front or the back, and the penalty was you weren't allowed to finish the, the word. So, uh, you know, you'd have things like, say you've got to ULF, and eventually that would get to golfing. And uh, then, uh, of course, <laughs> whether it was legit or not, uh, it was that was then stretched to disengulfing, which I don't think. <laughs> but it was a great, uh, a great game to play. So, and uh, John Fleas and I lived uh, in the same part of London, so we became um, great friends. Except that my partner at the time was a cat lover. And uh, John, so he's, he never fancied himself as an actor. He sort of himself as a writer. Um, and he was trying to write at home, but he, they had two Siamese cats that kept, cat, caterwauling, I guess the term is, is that kept uh, making terrible noise while he was trying to concentrate on writing. So he, oh, no. he took them to the specialist vets and had their vocal cords removed. <gasps> Um, what? Yeah. Oh my so, God. so my then partner um, banned him from the house because. <laughs> oh my goodness, mate! Gosh, that's a story. Now that that film, uh, now for something completely different. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that was to launch them in the US or try and get them noticed in the US. Is that right? I, I think it probably was. Yeah, um, but uh, I mean. Oh, there's a funny story story uh, about that. Um, the, the producers wanted to see um, an audience reaction. So they put it, announced uh, a special screening at a very suburban um, cinema, the Hendon Odeon or something. Um, and they advertised it as a new British comedy. So People went along uh, expecting to see a new carry-on up the Khyber or uh, right. one of those really naff crass. Um, it was entirely the wrong audience. But uh, during the filming, uh, uh, during the screening, the producers had uh, the audience uh, reaction recorded and um, they were a bit worried because people weren't necessarily laughing in the right places. You know, it was all <laughs> a bit too sophisticated for the audience that we had. But um, the, the, I was there when they were uh, talk, you know, conferring about what uh, had to be done as a result of the test screening. And uh, one of the producers, you wouldn't believe, said, uh, oh, there's a simple, simple explanation. We just 
cut out all the bits where the audience aren't laughing. Oh, my gosh. So, fortunately, that advice wasn't followed. Now, your your career has spanned many decades uh, and you've obviously seen massive technology changes and advances. Um, do you have an opinion of the workflows from back then compared to what they are today? Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, the, if I were asked what was the main difference between 70 years ago and now, I would probably say that it was trust was the, the major factor in the olden days because until Video Split came along, the director had to trust the camera operator to have the right things in frame. Uh, he also had to trust the the DOP uh, in terms of how something would eventually look on the screen because although, um, you know, I, I often had the, or sometimes, if I was working with a new director, mm. uh, they would do things like asking whether a scene was going to look dark enough to be moody or threatening or spooky or whatever uh, because because of the film speed, the low film speed, you had to pump a lot of light into it. Um, yes. And so there had to be this trust that the director had to trust the DOP, the DOP had to trust the operator and all that sort of thing. Uh, and often you wouldn't wouldn't see the results for weeks on end. You know, like yeah. I was shooting a feature in South Africa and uh, we wouldn't see the results for uh, anything up to six weeks later. Um, so trust was was a major... Yeah. I, I guess uh, now that, you know, these days that everything's uh, gone digital, well, mostly, I mean, there's still some people shooting on film, but would you say that there's anything that you miss from the days where it was just all film? I don't, I don't know. Uh, I think it's, it works probably the other way around. Um, mm. I, I look at uh, films on television now and I'm so envious of the... Um, of today's cinematographers because, you know, you see beautiful uh, night exteriors uh, that are shot under real, real, you know, street lamps and that sort of thing. This was impossible in, in my day. You, you know, you'd need a, a huge generator, a row of arc lamps along the street and all this sort of thing. So uh, mm. I'm... I'm very, um, very jealous of those <laughs> cinematographers. I, I mean, I don't think it, it uh, reduces the skill needed at all, but, um, uh, you know, today's techniques are, and the drones, I mean, uh, the, the stuff, the storytelling that is capable of being done by drones now, you know, uh, uh, not just being on people, being able to <clears throat> lift right up into the sky to see the setting that is involved. It's just so, I think that's all wonderful. Um, I wish we'd had it back in the olden days when, you know, there were things like we had to do aerials mainly from helicopters and uh, there were, yeah. <clears throat> you know, 
various things like, uh, you know, on uh, leaning out the side of a helicopter, trying to get a swooping shot, <clears throat> and the helicopter can't go fast enough uh, to, to for me to match up with a car that I'm supposed to be filming. Um, so the only way they can do it is if they fly straight, if the helicopter flies straight ahead and I'm out on my uh, landing gear, uh, you know, clear of the um, thing and holding the, the oh camera clear. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> of course, what I hadn't taken into account, you know, I, I get all uh, lined up and it's fine. I've got the camera nice and solidly. And... Then, as the um, as the helicopter takes off, suddenly uh, I'm feet below the doorway because the the landing gear is sprung, and I'd be <laughs> so so I had to do the whole of that run. Um, so hanging on was my, I mean, literally hanging on for my life with the left arm while shooting with the, the right arm. Oh my God! So you know. We've got a we've got a history of um, having to work with with getting teeth pulled out, broken legs, hanging out of helicopters. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, you're like a stunt cinematographer. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it sounds to me from what you were just saying then that you you kind of feel that the the way that technology has advanced is helping to tell stories. You know. It's, oh, it's absolutely. Kind of, yeah, I'm yeah. just so jealous of people these days. The, the, the fact that, you know, the quality that w we had to really strive for uh, on the film uh, with a lot of additional lighting and all that sort of thing. And these days, you know, the better quality of uh, mobile phones will give you <laughs> as much quality as that. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about, um, we, we kind of, we've kind of touched on a little bit, but about your experience with colour timing and how that's changed, and and if you if you think there's still room for the colourist as a specialty, or do you think that that kind of special specialisation is dying out a little bit? I think there is still a great need for colourists um, because although the the uh, means of production are now entirely or on the whole entirely digital, and there's a vast range of menus and stuff. That, on the camera that one can set, there is still, when you come to put all the shots together, that's when the colourist becomes so important. I used to be a great one for using filters, colour filters, softening filters, diffusion filters, all that sort of thing. And one is relying completely on one's memory for how things are going to look. And you, then when a film is edited together, uh, shots that might have been done six weeks apart are uh, joined together, and that's when the colorist, uh, the skill of the colorist, is brought in to keep them flowing to, and to make them look as though they were done at the same time in the same place, even if they weren't. Yeah. The magic of cinema. I think magic is a good word, actually. There's a lot of magic, isn't there? Um, now, I know uh, from a conversation we had previously that your uh, in the midst of writing your memoirs. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'd love to know what your approach is to writing an autobiography and, and how's the writing going? Uh, um, <laughs> oh, the problem with uh, the autobiography is that 
I, I keep thinking I'm near, nearly finished, and then I remember more things to put in. But uh, <laughs> this, uh, the, my autobiography is not a, um, a chronological thing. It's not I was born at a very young age and, you know, taking a year-by-year approach. It, it's, um, it, it's, it's a thematic autobiography. Of course, a, a lot of uh, personal stuff um, I, I filmed in... 31 different countries. So uh, travel, travel, of course, comes into it hugely and always a lot of debate about whether there are national characteristics. In my experience, there definitely were um, national characteristics. I mean, filming with a German crew in Germany was very different to filming with a Spanish crew in Barcelona, you know. Mm. I'm not uh, criticising either countries, technicians or creative people, but I'm just saying that the, the approaches are very different. Yeah, right. Um, and, of course, because I went from being a DOP to being a DOP and director or sometimes just, just being a director, it's given me a... Uh, uh, Different perspective on yeah yeah I bet I, I mean there's um, there's one chapter which was entirely about one uh, film which never saw the light of day uh, in the end but uh, I went around the world uh, trying to do a, a film for uh, a um, a hotel chain an international hotel chain. Um, and that that chapter is called "What Can Go Wrong Will Go Wrong." <laughs> that was literally how how it was. I mean, you couldn't believe that so many things could go wrong on the one film. I kind of kicked off our chat by saying how much of an influence you were on me and on my career, and how important that was. And I know for a fact that I'm not alone. That you've you've supported a lot of people and uh, a lot of people coming up through the industry. I was wondering if you could maybe finish off by giving any words of advice for, for younger people who are coming in, entering the film industry, um, or, or those who are the, at least very early in their careers. Uh, Vincent, thank you very much for your kind words about my mentorship. I, I certainly wasn't aware that I was particularly... <laughs> Um, mentoring you, I, I guess it was just that it's uh, you know what I lo- what I like doing. I like passing on the skills that I've learned. I guess my only advice to the next generation of filmmakers is to keep trying new things. There's so many wonderful things that one can do these days, and uh, not really dependent on expensive gear. I mean, experimenting was really difficult when I was young because film and its processing cost so much uh, that you you didn't want to waste uh, anything by experimenting. But these days, the wonderful chances to experiment, you can use, you know, you can set your own palette. I mean, either the cinematographer or the cinematographer and colorist combined can choose the palette that you're working on, which was so difficult in the past. So, yeah, 
or basically what I want to say to the next generation is keep trying new things, keep experimenting, and don't let the bastards grind you down. There you go. That's it. David, um, I want to thank you so, so very much for, for taking time to talk to me and, and, and to tell me. I mean, there's honestly, there's so much more I could ask you, but um, thank you so much. My pleasure, Vincent. And, uh, I'm very glad that you're doing such a great job of um, keeping the art of uh, art of motion pictures, I suppose, is what we call moving pictures, in the public's eye. I think you're doing a great job. Thank you. I'm I'm trying not to let the bastards grind me down, David. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> I'd like to thank David Muir, um, my guest on the Colour Couch. David, you're amazing. Thank you so much. I know it took forever to finally get this thing recorded, but um, I really appreciate your time and uh, it was just wonderful to, to chat to you. Uh, I'd like to thank my editor, uh, Matthew Tankard. Uh, Matthew, I know we had some technical challenges and I really appreciate all your hard work on this one. Uh, my executive producer, Amelia Chapelo, and Lau Post for, for hosting. Um, I just wanted to wrap up really quickly um, also with the news this week about Helena Hutchins, the cinematographer who was killed on set um, due to a prop gun incident. <sighs> yeah, it, it's just horrific that something like that can happen, uh, especially in this day and age. And, and I was conscious of when, you know, listening back to David talking about the injuries that he suffered on set and some of the kind of risky things that he was involved with and... You know, you could pass it off to being such a long time ago and uh, that hopefully things have changed. So it was pretty confronting to hear the news this week about a loss of a life uh, and, and the injury as well of the director. Um, and I can't help but acknowledge the fact that folks are doing just ridiculous hours on set and look, I don't know the backstory about what happened but surely it's not helping when people are very tired and, uh, you know, things, things get missed. Um, but anyway, my heart goes out to um, everyone affected by the tragedy. And um, please look after yourselves, everyone. And, uh, yeah, I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.